Welcome to Learnings from the Middle. I am Brian, one of your two hosts. I have been a software engineer for about 10 years now, just over, and I've gotten to work across healthcare, insurance, security, um, shipping logistics, and most recently, mobile devices, which is totally new for me and super fun. Uh, John, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name's John Christensen. I've been kind of in the uh, software development lifecycle management side of things for about the same amount of time, about 10, 11 years now, um, anywhere from project management to middleman of business analyst to more recently in the product owner role where I where I currently find myself and uh, intend to be for quite some time in, in the product space. So um, and as as Brian mentioned, we're, we're lessons from our learnings. I got to get that right. Learnings from the middle. Um, and basically, that's exactly what you kind of hear from us already is we're about 10 years into our career, maybe a little bit more. Um, definitely have more uh, time coming in front of us in our careers. Um, but without being too arrogant, we, we've, we've done well. We've, we've been successful for for where we're at and uh, maybe not wildly ladder climbing. Um, but I think we've definitely been able to build reputation and rapport in our careers, in our spaces. Um, and we've done that by learning a lot of lessons and uh, and having done things wrong and done things correctly and had a lot of experience. So uh, we think it's good content, uh, <laughs> at least for us to discuss. And hopefully others find it interesting just to kind of opine or, or hypothesize or philosophize uh, on on different topics that we've experienced in our career thus far. So, Brian, I miss anything? The only thing I'll add is John and I go back very far. All the way oh, to first far. grade. First grade. And first that's, grade. That's where a lot of the, the rapport and friendship between the two of us comes in. And for a while, we worked at the same company and found that friendship enabled a lot of uh, work conversations that would have otherwise been terribly stressful. So figured that yeah. dynamic might help out the podcast, too. When you can have the tough conversations with, I don't agree with you right now, but I'm still going to go have lunch with you after this. Like, it helps a lot when yep. you don't have to worry. Like... Ryan and I have been friends since first grade. That's not going to go away because a project is off the rails. So we can have those hard conversations um, and then move forward. And then working it with each other and then going back our own ways, it's still been beneficial to come back and have that sounding board with each other to, to kind of work through some of those tough questions. From Especially from the engineering side, from his perspective and my side on either product or business analyst or project management where I'm focused on delivery. Um, and he's usually uh, on the engineering side with the brunt of uh, increasing scope and scope creep and delivery timelines and give me a date and give me a sizing and why isn't this done yet type questions. And it just creates a very good place to be able to have those kind of conversations. Yeah. It's helpful to get some perspective. <laughs> and today, so today, so what are we topic, talking about today? Tonight, today, the topic is how do you lower stress at work when stress is mounting? So uh, this topic Oof. is very interesting Oof. to me because everybody's job is stressful. And just because I'm in it, technology and engineering feels very stressful to me a lot of the time. I'm sure everybody, everybody's job has stresses in different ways. But I think this is an interesting one to dig into in our field, especially. So what? my first question is, what causes you stress at work? What makes a stressful oh, day as a product owner? I can go first too if you need me to jack. No, I think, I think you know, just identifying the source is a great place to start from. I think, again... Projects are always going to have things go off the rail. You can have the best requirements. You can have spent weeks planning it. You can even be working, even attempting to do more waterfall than agile just to try to avoid some of those stressors. But ultimately, um, 
you're going to have curveballs. You're going to have things that go off the rails. Um, so that doesn't scare me anymore. So if you would have asked me this question again, going 10 years ago, starting, I would have been freaking out with every project. Like, why is this breaking? Oh my gosh. And it's just like, you just kind of know you're going to hit that. Not all the time. Cause then you're doing something wrong. If you're hitting it all the time, but you're going to hit that oftentimes in projects. So now what I would say was causing me stress is, is the ones you thought you planned for. If you thought you planned for a curveball or you were ready for something to come out of left field and then it still comes and hits you, those are the ones that I think still end up causing me stress. So, um, golly, what's a good example of that? I'm trying to just put that in tangible terms of, I know that getting sourcing from this project team is incredibly difficult. I know that they're always in the middle. I know, let's say it's an API services team and every service coming in and out of my company has to go through that team. So they're always backlogged. They're always hard to get on. I have a project that I know is going to impact them. I get on the calendar. I have the one-on-one conversations. I get in front of them. We get commitment and it comes time and I still don't have that resource. That's the kind of things that frustrate, that get me stressed is when I've tried to identify it and I've tried to address it and it still feels outside my power to address. That'd be my that biggest one. Fascinating. I, that is not at all what I expected. So okay. I want to, you go first and then you tell me what, what you thought I was going to say. So I thought we were going to say the same thing and say that unplanned work is the stressful, like the moment of stress. And oh. maybe it is. Okay. So we're not, we, we aren't. Yes and no. Sure. Yes and no. So why don't you go first, then we'll elaborate. We'll pick on each other's. So so me, for an engineer, I find the most stressful thing is uncontrollable, unplanned work. So if you're getting an urgent request from a product team, you can negotiate, you can dialogue about priorities, you can share your resource load. But at the end of the day, you're dealing with a goal that's probably movable for the most part. I Mm -hmm. that may raise some some questions or some comments. (laughs) But what's really stressful is when you get unplanned, uncontrollable work, like your this software package has a security vulnerability, like the log4j stuff that was several months ago now, when you had to deploy it, it had to be immediately, there is no negotiating, there is no conversation, it just has to happen. And that to me is very stressful, because you've got deadlines that are not just targets they are not just objectives they are something tangible bad is going to happen if you don't do this in a certain amount of time so that could be a security vulnerability it could be an outage it could be something is getting deprecated and there's no way to keep it live but uncontrollable unplanned work is definitely the 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 biggest cause of stress the other thing would be people and engineers who are not cooperating (laughs) Because that's, you know, <laughs> that goes back to sourcing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, that's mine. I think the one reason why I wouldn't like that one doesn't come at it for me is because a lot of the stuff that you just described are lot largely operational focused. Yeah. And for me and most of my career so far has been in a very much projects or new feature um, um, type new code going mm-hmm. out the door type place. So when it's not a security vulnerability on new code, let's say it's a patch that just came out on existing infrastructure or something like that. I know about it because I own the platform or, or I may be involved in the platform, but I don't have to go solve that. I get to go tap the engineer on the shoulder and say, I don't know anything about patching. I know what it is. And I know the new patch came out. I know it says, that's not my job to go fix. So I think that un, undef- uh, uncontrollable and um, unexpected work I know it exists, 
but it's usually not in my side of the kitchen to address. So it's not one that I'm overly with. Mine is the uh, unexpected but controllable uh, to a degree. I come in with the unexpected scope, the weed in either, and it can be from different ways. It can be a straight up misrequirement. It can be straight up misdesign from the team, whether that be on the engineering side and the tech design, or whether that be the user flow from the product side. And again, working as a team, there shouldn't be too much finger pointing in that, but it can just be missed design, missed requirement, missed feature, or a, hey, we had users start using this and we realized that this one piece would make a big difference. We need to, we need to do make this change just from a user experience perspective. Like that, I understand adds tons of stress to engineers, but I feel less stressful about that now than I used to, because you and I can usually have a conversation about that then. Um, I only have so much time. I only have so much money and I only have so much quality. Your, your three favorites, time, money, or quality. Um, I think are, are your, is your, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You got to pick two. Um, and I can have that conversation. So that conversation causes less stress for me now, unless I'm getting trumped by a superior that just comes in and says it all has to be done. And then we all lose sleep. But in general, I think that that causes less stress than it used to. Let me see if I'm tracking. So, and I understand there could be a lot of different things, but mm -hmm. the the example I'm going to to try to understand your perspective is to say, You've got an item in a risk log, you've ranked it, you've scoped it, you've gotten, you know, whoever execs on board or whoever stakeholders that they need to talk to that team, you think you've organized it and then something falls through and that team backs out or has a deadline they can't meet or whatever yep. it is. Okay, so it's like written down somewhere, it's understood. It's, it's, it's yeah. like, I can even have an example of this one just from a recent week, again, without naming companies or teams or anything like that to where we were on a call four weeks ago defining the, the the requirement. We need XYZ solution because this population doesn't have access. We, we've solved for our other set of, of, of customers and products. It's all solved for in a BAU solution, but we have one outlier that just has to be doing something different that we have to solve for. And our request is to get back into the BAU process as quickly as possible because the longer we're outside the BAU process, the more work you have to create more and more custom code, more and more custom solutions, as opposed to, I know this is one random one, figure out how to get this random one back into the BAU process. Don't create a whole solution just for this one random one. That was four weeks ago. Great. Understand the ask, do a POC. They want to do a POC. We give them two weeks, three weeks, ended up being three weeks. We go through the POC. We get back on the call. It's like we never had the first conversation. Um, it's, it's like there was one piece of that solution that was POC proof of concept. Uh, let's, let's define our terms a little bit here, uh, for, for maybe some folks that don't know, but, um, and it's just like, okay, the concept was get me back into the BAU flow as soon as possible. Your proof of concept picked one piece of that puzzle and I still don't have the rest of the solution. And I was expecting to start developing on this next week, assuming that the POC was successful. That is the example of stress to me. Okay. It was planned. It was defined. It was called out. You tried to address it. You thought you're on the same page. Three weeks later, you're actually back where you were started and nothing's actually changed. That's okay. those are the ones that drive me bonkers and keep me awake at night. Because twofold. One, they're incredibly aggravating. But two, they also cause them as questions. What didn't I communicate? What didn't I say? How did this get miscommunicated? What did what and again, you don't want to play the blame game, but where was the breakdown? Because this isn't the last time it's going to happen. What didn't go right that caused us to go off the rails? Um, and I internalize it a lot in those project leadership positions. So, so I think I'm going to basically say what you just said about unplanned, uncontrollable work, 
and say, I acknowledge that that's stressful. Those conversations are, are somewhat stressful on an engineering team. But personally, I get to kick the responsibility back up to the product owner and say, uh, you know, like, hey, these, this is not going to work. And uh, we are at an impasse. We cannot launch on the day that you wanted. So I would love to hear your plan on talking to users and execs and, and the finance team and the budget and whatever else needs to happen. But at the end of the day, as an engineer, there's only so much throughput you can have. So I'm I'm questioning if I have enough empathy for product owners that bring that kind of situation to me, because as an engineer, it's it's pretty easy to say a requirement got missed. Uh, I'll own my own responsibility for not communicating my needs clearly or whatever my role in that was. But at the end of the day, it falls back on the product team to figure out what dates need to shift and what plans they need to adjust. So I yeah, the adjustment from the issue is not yours. Like it, exactly. Now I may escalate and, and 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 cause misery outside of the actual project timeline itself of why in the world did this happen and what do we need to do differently. But as far as what actually needs to happen on the project, that's no longer yours to solve because you're just reporting facts at that point. That yep. makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. And probably the same reason where I understand my platform is at risk when there's a patching thing that comes out last minute. But at the same time, I'm not going to be the one that's staying up till one a.m. trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, because I can't contribute anything to that. I know what needs to be done. And I know it's impacting our platform, but I can't contribute anything to it. Um, I can I can see that re the reverse way as well. Um, so yeah, those are the kind of things that that really get me stressed is when when you thought you accounted for it, when you thought you figured it out, when you thought you had a plan, um, and then it's not even the unknown stumbled across. It's the you just didn't execute. The you just didn't execute is is the ones that definitely cause the stress for me. Yeah. So then here's my second question. Yeah. What do you do? What's your step to, how do you step away? How do yeah. you get enough distance from the problem to be able to make a productive next step? Ooh, you go first on this one. <laughs> as you're, as, as, as I'm going on coffee to coffee. Sorry. Uh, or to cough. So my, it depends on the severity of the problem for me. My, sometimes you can't step away. Sometimes, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you need to start doing things now. Uh, yep. But really, even then, my first response is to start taking notes. And that I, I got good at in uh, when I worked at a healthcare company, the one that we both worked at together, where there were a lot of outages. Um, the uptown demands were very high. And what I found was that if I started fixing things without tracking what I was doing, it actually generated more confusion and then more stress for me. And it made it really hard for me to remember what I had done. It made it really hard for me to communicate to other people how they could help. It just made me feel very scattered. So the first thing I do is start writing down notes. So I, I link the CVE or the security vulnerability or the outage email or whatever. Uh, and I try to do this publicly if I can, so it's in a doc I can share. I start taking notes about the impact. I copy CLI commands that I'm running. I put links to build jobs if I'm building a fix into a software package. And that's just the first, my, my instinctive first step is to open a notes doc and start dumping anything relevant in there because it will be a point of reference later on. And then it also helps me understand how much work we have left to do. So then yep. you say, here's the build that fixes it. It needs to go to these six environments. I have these three covered. I need somebody to take these three. And then you can start delegating and distributing work after that. Okay. 
makes sense. Um, and again, right now where we're having this conversation, I'm in a new weird position. That's just a weird position. Just I'm starting a new job here shortly. I'm transitioning companies. Um, and so this is actually one of the ones that I'm looking forward to doing differently. So I think I want to answer it from both perspective of what do I do currently versus what I want to gain. So yeah. if I do have a minute to step away, um, when I worked in a downtown location, I would go for a 15 minute coffee walk. I'd go down to my favorite coffee shop. I'd get a coffee. I'd come back, just walk outside if I could to take that 15 minutes. Um, you know, to, to get away from it at home. I love working from home. I know it's spoiling. We're spoiled to some degree with it. Um, I know it's not a luxury that everybody sees as a luxury. Um, and some people don't like it as much, but, um, I see it as a blessed luxury. If I can walk out that door and I can go hug my daughter and play with uh, ice cream truck for a little bit, her play ice cream truck or go talk to my wife, or I can step away from the situation. And sometimes I just need that because, um, a big difference between you and I um, is I am more, uh, I don't know if emotional would be the right word, um, probably is, <laughs> um, but I definitely react more strongly quickly. So the quicker that I can tamp down that initial reaction, uh, the better. And so personal development wise, the idea would not to have to be able to walk away to be able to get that initial rain on on the the initial response. Like it'd be able to not even have that initial response, at least leave my head. I'll probably still have it in my head, but uh, to be able to kind of curb off that initial frustration or stress outpouring to the team um, before it even gets out there. Uh, if now when it comes to actually addressing it, defining, 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 um, kind of similar to your note taking, whether I'm the one taking the meeting minutes, whether I'm one the creating the tickets, somebody who's involved in that, and it could be me in that product role sometimes, uh, needs to be writing down what the gap was or what the issue is. We, you have to identify what the actual core issue is because too many times you're treating symptoms or you think you're treating the right thing and you actually completely miss the problem and the team is not on the same page and you're making a stressful situation even worse. So if you haven't at least taken the time to document the issue and you're just fix, 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 you, you at least need to make sure um, you, you've defined the issue. Um, the full the full definition and uh, Brian, what's the technical term? The uh, post-mortem, I call it post-mortem more. RCA correction of error. Yeah. 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 Though that whole kind of process is that will come where you and we're back. Oh, we're back. <laughs> That'll be an awesome. <laughs> Gotta love the, the podcast, podcast learning yeah. curve, but that's all right. <laughs> no kidding. So uh, you had to leave to kind of develop that empathy, but you want to finish that thought or I kind of want to spin off that. Cause I think you, you kind of identify there's different types of responses depending on the issue. Yeah. That was the end of it. I have to leave to generate, to let the emotions come generate the empathy, any frustration that's helpful, um, and just kind of parse through that. So I take a walk for the opposite reason to start the emotion. Okay. And again, I think that's just a personality thing. And you mentioned that you compartmentalize and you see it as both a strength and a weakness. I think, I think I largely see it as a strength, but you compartmentalize very well in a way that I think a lot of people would have a hard time relating to, but I think it serves you very well. I mean that in the nicest way possible mm -hmm. <laughs> I, in a serious way. No, in a serious way, like again, for history on our friendship, like I would have to, when we were working in the same company, I would have to come up and say if I was in friend mode or work mode, because I would get a different version of Brian based on if I said I was coming in work mode or friend mode, because it was a cue for you to know where are we at, where do we stand? Because you compartmentalize that so well. Now it's like, not like it didn't bleed over at all. Um, or that our, the, the friend mode didn't bleed into that work relationship, but it definitely set the terms of what kind of engagement am I going to get at this point in time? 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you brought up a really good point around like, is it, is it a people like central issue or is it a tech central issue? <clears throat> and usually it's not that clean, but, um, I love tech issues. I absolutely love tech issues because honestly, people tend to power through them and, and, and then it's everybody trying to solve a problem. It's you versus the world versus the tech versus the issue. You're going to fix it. You're going to solve it. Or even if it's a person issue, but it's like a person issue way out there. Like the CEO came into band of this and we can't do anything about this. And we have to figure this out. Like that's very much a team environment where you're going to go, like you need less of that time away and you can just pour into it as a team. Like that's not as stressful to me. It's, it's stressful in one way, but it's not emotionally stressful or, or like baggage level stressful. It's, it's tense, but it's not stressful mm-hmm. how I would define it. People is tough. People, people are tough. <clears throat> and I think that's just a very different way of, Again, how do I, as an uh, as a more emotion forward person, how do I not break my poker face immediately and get red and angry and frustrated and have someone interpret that, that that I'm angry, mad, and frustrated at them? And even if I am angry, mad, or frustrated with them, that's really not helpful. And I, again, as a product, it, everything comes through me at some point or another, usually to where I, I I can't, I'm, I'm not devoid of the blame or I'm not devoid of the team. It's, it's such a team oriented area. There's no way to not have empathy on the situation or not have to own some of that situation myself. So if I can tamp down that initial, not even frustration at people, but just frustration at the situation and just get to treating it like that, like that uh, tech issue or like that far away person issue. If I can bring that mentality into every issue, I think that would greatly help reduce stress. I don't know. Does that make sense? Or is that a little too ethereal? I, I think it does. And you're totally right on the tech issues you often have a command you can run to tell you if it's fixed. And that yep. is spiffy. Like with the log4j issue, you run this command and you know if you're vulnerable or not. With people, the analysis is so much more complex and involved. And there's no way to tell if you've actually grasped the problem and if you've actually gotten on the same page of solving it. So, Or people are just saying one, yes and nodding their heads. or Exactly. <laughs> or or still feeling frustrated but not communicating it. And that one, I... I come from the opposite end of it as well, where you need I need to know when to express frustration and when to lean into the soft skills and not just be analytical. Because if you come to a people problem with an analytical mindset, you wind up missing aspects of the situation that just aren't there. And so as yep. an engineer who's used to dealing with analytical tech problems, when you flip to trying to do people stuff, you need to remember that the emotions matter. And if you come in like a robot and say, please list your emotions so that I can solve them for you, it's just not helpful. <laughs> it's but not. If you it's can, not. Yeah. But if you can come in and you can be a little bit vulnerable and you can articulate what you've observed and how you feel and build that relationship in a sincere way, not in a manipulative mm-hmm. way, but in a sincere, I need, I want to build a relationship with you. And part of that is explaining and articulating how I feel in this moment so that you feel safe doing the same, then that's helpful. So it's it's a blend and you need to a perfect balance. Yeah, I got an example of this actually really recently um, to where I, I don't, emotions, I, I, I like relationships and I like people. I feel like that's the main thing that makes me good at my job. So I never want to take away from them. But to some degree, they're there to get through, to get to the the actual tech solve or use case solve or whatever that solve is that you're trying to figure out, you have to get through the emotions to get to that. And sometimes the emotions help you get there, but you're still in one way, shape or form trying to get past 
the emotions or the relationship or the egos. Um, and so recently, um, I had a team, it was two dev teams. So again, I'm more of a listener on this than I am doing a deep dive technical review. I've set my requirements. These teams are now having to figure out the tech design to figure it out. Um, and the tech design was submitted from this team and this team agreed. Three months later, uh, we're very agile. You can tell in my current job. Three months later, um, we come back and one team built it in a way uh, that did not align with the agreed upon designs. Um, started that conversation. Team A, who who was the owner of the design, were very much trying to make it hurt. Um, and not so much in an unprofessional way, but they want to be very clear. Your team B missed this. You didn't see this. This was in the requirements. It was spelled out. This is going to cost the scope. Like, we can't just change this. Like, it was very much a, we want to, for better or for worse, rub your nose in the fact that you missed this. And this, this was not us. This was you. Um, team B comes in, takes it. And doesn't even, it, it just says, yeah, we missed this like a hundred percent. And it wasn't in a, a move on. It wasn't in a, I'm just acknowledging it so we can move on. It was very much in a, no, we miss this. Our project is now in jeopardy. We completely can see it in the documentation. We know we got this wrong, but we're at a point where we can't fix it from our end. If we had to fix it from our end, it's five weeks. If you guys have to fix it from your end it's or change your design, it's one week. We are asking you to change your design, even though they were the ones that are at fault. Because the way they came into that call, and because of a side I am with the person who was rubbing their nose in it, just saying, hey, they get it. They're asking for an olive branch here. And just some of that personal relational discussion, we were able to, within 10 minutes, move on from that conversation, take the law, take the L, take the one week, take mm -hmm. the acknowledgement. But because of that, um, that handling of that situation, of that stressful situation, because both sides missed it. One team's like, you're adding work to me. And the other team's like, Dude, we look like we got egg on our face. We totally screwed this up. We're more professional than this. Like, it's a bad situation. It's a stressful situation. But because of the way it was handled and acknowledged and emotionally empathized with, both teams were able to get to where we needed to be. So, yeah, I don't know. That makes a ton of sense. And I, I could, I'm coming up with a couple of examples or similar situations. the The one I'll briefly lay out is an engineer caused an outage because of a mistake in the documentation. And it was a big outage. It got, it was Ooh. a sub two directors uh, and lots of people were finding out about it and jumping on the call. And he was so welcoming of inspection on what he had done and any deviation from the documentation. He had screenshots, he had notes, and there was no defensiveness. There was no, don't blame me for this. Or this isn't my fault. The docs were wrong. Um, he just welcomed all of the inspection that was possible and it wound up with him looking like the hero because he was able to share the information about what he had done and the gaps in the docs that helped people fix it. But it's, it was that confidence where he came in knowing he's a top-notch engineer, knowing that nobody could question his skills or his professionalism. And that just enabled him to be as transparent and own that mistake as, as much as possible. So something like, I think this would be the one rabbit trail we need to hit on tonight because I think it's so key. And it's actually, again, talk about what I want to do going into the new role uh, moving forward of first thing you did, uh, you wanted to do when you actually started addressing, once you got your brain set where you wanted it and you, and you take in your space is document and open tickets or tie out or notes or, you know, create the, uh, create the, the, the code branch. Like you just start getting things on paper. First thing I said that I've learned is somebody, again, a lot of takes me 
has to be what is the issue, defining it, putting it in English terms. I have to go communicate that to business stakeholders. You're trying to do the tech side and the code side. I need to be able to go communicate to business stakeholders. This is what broke. This is why it's broke. This is what we're doing to fix it. Um, you just mentioned that guy who is in that situation. He didn't know he was walking into an issue, but he was documenting in such a way of what he was doing that it was clear where the break happened and what went wrong. So what I'm trying to get to with all this, and I should just get to the point, is documentation and writing things down. Um, and whether that's informal for me having a notepad on the side that's documenting all my personal follow-ups, whether that's formal documentations of good, solid uh, user stories that, again, don't turn into a BR, like a business requirement stock, but you still need to have a solid enough user story and acceptance criteria to where nothing is left. Mm, you got to be careful there. Where as much as possible is not left in question. I, I get beat up with scope creep all the time, so I got to be careful with this because I don't think that's fair. <laughs> but topic for a different for a different podcast. But documentation, documentation, documentation. And I think it was it was a conversation I just had. I don't want to call it my exit interview, um, but um, which is my manager. Very candid conversation with my manager as I was leaving because I have a lot of respect from her. So I was able to say, "Hey, here are things I've seen as working for you that you know." Um, I would, I would mind seeing change. And what do you see about me going into a new job? What should I be working on? Um, <clears throat> and this is one of them. What, it was just better documentation of what I know, because to this point in my career, talking about being in the middle of your career, my ability to use my head, hold it all in my head, distill the information, pick a direction and go has been what's gotten me to this point in my career. I, I, I to, to be able to do that and do that well. I'm now at the point in my career where it does no good if the only place that that resides is in my head. <laughs> it's like, it's just like yeah. what has gotten me here has been and been a gift to this point is still very helpful. But if I can't learn to get down my thought process and my decision process and my actions um, or even the team's actions and decision points and making sure those actually re result in a document, um, you're going to find yourself in more stressful situations to start with. So I know we're talking about how to deal with stress and lower your stress um, when it comes up, but I would say if you just want to avoid it in the first place, like documentation could be its whole own uh, topic we could talk through. Yeah. And that I will say, I appreciate product managers documenting. I find that typically an engineer has to add a layer of detail. 100%. So it's super helpful to have a starting point and to have a clear place where you can add questions and get clarification and take notes and go back and forth. But I, I also typically find that engineering teams need to write some version of that themselves and have another layer of detail. And I've seen a couple product owners try to go to the level of engineering detail that we need. And as it's sometimes helpful and other times it's clear they invested a lot of time and it's going to need to get reworked in engineering terms anyways. So it's a tough balance to strike yeah. enough to starting point without going overboard. Unless you have a true tech PO who's more of an architect than he is a PO. And when I say architect, I don't mean box level architect. I mean, tech design architect. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you always need that level because uh, from product owner, like, again, it's, it, we're not expected to be coders, devs, uh, and not even just coding, but even tech infrastructure and code pipelines and deployment pipelines. And like, I mean, we get it. We, we know the references of it. But if we're having to write down requirements to that level, we're not doing something else that we should be spending our time on. And we're probably, to your point, we're probably not doing a very good job of it in the first place. So it's that fine line of you don't want to say not my job, but sometimes is there a better person that is more fit to do this job that would do it better than the person you're asking to do it? 
again, there, there's about five other rabbit holes we can go down, but I yeah. definitely think there's a level of further definition that's needed between uh, what a typical product owner or business analyst would deliver and then what a tech team is going to go build off of. So it, there, yeah. I think there's still technically a tech design behind the user story, um, even though you don't know, I'll make it too, too heavy of a process. But I, I agree in principle where you, if you write things down, a lot of times what I find is that both in, engineers and product owners have perceived that they have understanding, myself included, and the perception on both sides or the understanding on both sides or for multiple people is a little bit different. So I say we need to foo the bar and or you know we need to build the fizz bang and you hear mm -hmm. we need to build the bang fizz and it's just yep. a little bit it's just slightly adjusted but if you ask questions until you've got understanding and then you write it down and you say this was what i understood does this match mm -hmm. your interpretation then you can you can really get ahead of a lot of those miscommunications and a lot of those problems and that's where again i mean i hate to say it but it all just does come down to having a good team and having trust in a good team too because unfortunately there is there is a gap. There is always going to be a gap between what your product or business stakeholder can communicate and what your tech team is going to go build and develop without knowledge of what the stakeholder has. There, there is just an inherent gap between those two things. Um, another current example of this is we, going back to that example of um, where we had this one-off population of accounts that we're trying to get back into our BAU process. I need to be able to define that far enough to say, I don't want to really have to do you have to go rebuild seven services? I want to re have to rebuild one, maybe two. If your solution still comes back to a place where I have to rebuild seven services, you're not giving me the solution I'm asking for. Like that's as far as I can go. But in the course of listening into their conversation, when I heart start hearing them talking about who, which party is the identity provider, well, we're not going to be the identity provider. Well, if you're not the identity provider, that means I got to go rebuild four of these services again. Like I have to be aware enough to go like, no, you're not hearing my requirement. Now, I don't know all the details behind what makes someone an identity, identity provider and where you're getting all the details. And if I'm even asking for something feasible for this party not to have to be an identity provider, I don't know, but I'm asking to try to minimize the amount of rework that I know I have to do if we can't get back to a BAU solution. But they're mm -hmm. in that conversation. There's an inherent gap. There is something to where I know what I'm asking for, but I am not nearly technical enough to be talking about secure handshakes and who's your identity provider and who's managing the session. Like, so to try to work through those type of conversations, it just takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of trust and it takes good engineers and good product people because yeah, it just, it's, if you don't have, if you don't have troubleshooting engineers, it can be a very frustrating conversation. Yeah. My catchphrase for that, and I'm in that situation plenty where I'm not a technical expert. I'm coming in as somebody offering feedback and trying to help drive to a to a solution. And my catchphrase for that is, I don't. I may not understand completely, but it seems to me that, and then state yes. the problem, and it just kind of keep on that thread until you get an explanation that you're satisfied with. And I think that people get sick of me saying that because I sound like a broken record and I say that phrase a lot, but it seems to work. I think so sometimes the only time I've gotten sick of it is when you are the expert and you just need to be the expert. Sometimes you're too <laughs> humble. <laughs> sometimes you just need to be the expert. But as a product owner, it's always a little bit of a notch on the belt when you kind of push on something and you hear the engineer come in and going, yeah, he's 100% right. I'm just like, 
yes, I got it right. <laughs> Nailed it. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyways, next question, it. next part of this. We're talking supposed to be talking about stress here, man. Yeah, uh, it, it is. It is all tied it, into that. So, so who do you tell? Who do you tell when you've got a stressful day, and how do you get balance? I think the next two kind of tie into each other. Yeah, yeah. So, I would say the who do you tell? This is another one that I want to improve on going into new one is. I am an open book. I do wear my heart on my sleeve. And sometimes that does not behoove me well in stressful situations. I, I'm socially aware enough to where I can't say I've ever completely and totally ruined a relationship or biffed it so bad that I've left someone hurt or scarred. Um, but I definitely know I can overshare when it does. Just, I, I do just need to internalize a little bit more. Um, we're, in such, we're in such a culture that this idea that you have to overstatement, but you have to suffer on your own is frowned upon. I think that's part of being a leader. Part of being a leader is eating the stress, is not being a perpetuator of the stress to others and to not necessarily blabber about it to every coworker or even just those one or two that you talk about. So I think I was never one that was over talking about it, like with the entire team or talking behind people's backs or anything to that degree. But I definitely would always have two or three or people that I could depend on that I would use as a sounding board. That might be better off being one or two. And now a place in my career where maybe those could be out, people outside the sphere even. They don't even have to be within the sphere of impacted directly by the stressor that's that's going on. Do I have people outside of that stressor that I can talk things through with? Such as you. Again, we're at different companies now. So can I can I use you as a sounding board or can I use my previous mentors as sounding boards as opposed to, you know, who do I tell about it internally to where you you are just risking something there. You're risking whining. You're risking mm-hmm. sharing something you shouldn't or something like that. Um, I, it's, I don't have, um, like I love my wife dearly. Um, you know that very much. Um, but I mean, she's not going to understand some of these stressors and why they're stressors, but she'll still be an open ear. Um, so it's still just talking through her or just like, Hey, I had a bad day either relationally or technically. And she can just know like, Hey, we might just need to have a casual night. So, um, mm-hmm. I think the big thing you put there and, and the next question is who, how do you get balanced on your perspective is it is just all perspective. I mean, I hate to say it because I take my job seriously. I love excelling at my job. I love crushing it at my job. Counting it, it's so small. It, I mean, again, go back to my, my, my two and a half year old that I get to go out and visit, go back to uh, greater things in life, whether it be babies being born or grandparents passing away um, or what you're doing outside of work spiritually, um, or with your family, like work is just so small. Like even the millions of dollars that you lose when something gets delayed for two months is, is super small, um, in comparison. So I think it goes back to trying to step away to get the perspective of not because it gives you any less urgency, but it takes the stress out of it. It it, it takes the wind out of the panic sale you still come in, you still try to solve it. You still talk through it. You still rally the team. You still push, you still work the overtime if needed. Um, but you just, you drop the stress from it. Cause it's just not that big of a deal. There's my, mm-hmm. there's my soapbox for the night. That's a good soapbox. If you're going to choose one to get on. I, so I think this is a point where compartmentalizing works very well for me because typically I'm able to separate the people who are involved in the problem from the issue itself. And then for, for the actual issue, the roadmap, the timeline, the design, I am very comfortable talking to coworkers about that part of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, team members, people on the other team talking about the situation, the issue, the tech design, the bug, the security vulnerability, whatever it is, 
I'm very comfortable talking about the facts there and being careful not to disparage any of the individuals who are playing a role. Um, a phrase I got from a mentor once is assume everyone is talented and trying hard. And sometimes you'll be proven wrong, but start there every time. And then that yeah. makes it very comfortable saying, you know, that person or or engineer X or or person B on that team is trying hard and they're very talented and we still have this design issue that we need to work out. So let's focus on that and not disparage that person and give them the tools they need to be successful. And then when I've got a people problem where I have decided that I think an individual is making a mistake or is being problematic or is uh, bad, I find somebody as distant from the team as possible to bounce that off of. So that might be you working at a totally different company. It might be, if I'm at a big enough company, it might be a mentor in another org or in another product vertical, somebody that I trust. And then in those conversations, I try to keep it very short. So I paint a picture of what's going on for a minute, and then I spend two minutes saying how I feel, what I think, or the conclusions that I've drawn. And then I say, for the rest of this conversation, please poke holes in what I've what I've gotten to. Because it's not, sometimes it's helpful to vent and have somebody confirm your opinions. But I find it's more helpful for someone to push back and tell you where you've been hasty in your judgment, where you might have made an assumption, or maybe you've assumed that that person has something or some talent or skill to handle the situation that they may not. So try to find somebody very distant and then get some pushback on the frustration or the conclusions that I've drawn in that situation. Again, it goes back to perspective setting. You know, it's just what am I over reading into this? What, or what am I reading into this at all? Um, or what am I emphasizing that really doesn't need to be emphasized? Um, because it happens so often. Two people are on the same call and take things two completely different ways. Um, and even, I, it makes it like, how do we even get, how do we even get code out the door, Brian? How do, how does any company even get code out the door? I don't know. Yeah. Um, because you can, whether it be the actual details themselves or whether it be the undertones behind what was said. Um, so often, people will hear them two different ways. And so having someone to say, this is what was said and this is what I heard. Does that jive or am I bringing my own thoughts and, and background into that? Um, I think where you get, I guess one, one final one is I just, I keep coming back to, it really helps to have a good team. Um, and I just know that's a luxury. And so I think a lot of these conversations is you have to know how to do these skills and apply these skills and, and apply stress management when there might be flat out somebody else that's dropping the ball, when you might have teams that are difficult to work with, when you might have someone you could directly point the finger at, but it does no good to directly point the finger at them. Like, you know, it's just how you're not going to be in an ideal situation all the time to where you're just going to be able to get on a call and everybody's going to be jumping to the same tune of let's just go fix this and figure out the solution. Mm -hmm. um, you still have to be able to do these things because um, especially where we're at now um, in the, in the hiring environment we are now, like if, if you can somewhat be decent at your job, you're probably going to find a job somewhere because mm -hmm. it's so hard to find tech uh, technology resources right now. Um, but it is such a blessing to be on a team when you know, you can jump on that call and you have people that you can assume the best out of, of, we're all trying to figure this out, you know, what, how do we get there? And that's just not mm -hmm. always the case. So I, I guess I'm trying to be a realist about it of, does this still apply? Let me phrase it as a question, Brian. Does, do these tactics still apply when it's, 
when it is more messy, when it isn't everybody's pulling the boat in the same direction? So I, I think they do. And I have my own little soapbox here. I think that truly incompetent employees is a rarity. I think I've seen it a handful of times in my career, but I think in general, it's not just a pithy band-aid to reset your thought process. I do genuinely believe that most people are talented and trying hard. So when you come at it from that perspective and it's not, what do I need to do to remove this blocker, this person who's blocking my project, or what do I need to do to get rid of this engineer who's turning out subpar code? And you stop and you say, what a, so let's, let's say this person is talented and trying hard. What about the system is setting them up for failure? And what about the mechanisms or the documentation or the standards or the team collaboration is making it so that they're doing poor work? And when you stop and you think about that, it lets you expand to, do they have the background that they need? Has the team articulated their quality standards? Um, is the, are unit tests easy to write? And are there good examples to start from? Do they have a more senior engineer they can pull in on their code reviews and, and get some feedback from? And so if you really truly believe that most people are talented and trying hard, it lets you focus on the system around them a little bit more and think about what might help them there. Um, the last one we were going to ask is, do you have an example you feel comfortable sharing? And this is a great segue into that. Do you mind if I dive into that? Yeah, I think I could push back on this one a little bit, but I don't think I need to. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll welcome that in a minute. Um, <laughs> so the example that I'm going to is I had a, um, a project manager and I was incredibly frustrated with this individual. Their notes were confusing and didn't capture the gist of the conversation. Their coordination was awful and people didn't, they didn't know who to schedule meetings with. When I asked for definitions of ask, like things that they were supposed to be in charge of, I didn't get documentation and I was, I was super frustrated. So I brought it to a mentor and I said, I don't, I can't figure out how to fix this. There's, there's a huge problem and I don't know what to do. This individual doesn't have the context they have. And the first question I got is how long has that person been in this domain? And I thought to myself, I have no idea. And then the next question was, does that person have the technical knowledge to be able to write the notes that you want them to write? And I said, I have no idea. So I started scheduling one-on-ones with this project manager and asked, how long have you been in this space? We were in delivery logistics at the time. And, uh, you know, what's, I'm like, I've never been to one of our sites where we deliver this stuff. Have you? And found out this individual was jumping into a space to help that they had very little expertise in and everyone around them had a lot of that expertise and it made a very intimidating environment to ask questions. So then I started filling in blanks, checking in off to the side and defining things, articulating what I needed, being more clear in writing, doing one-on-ones to explain stuff when it was helpful. And the quality of the notes and the quality of the organization just jumped. And so it was clear to me that, and you could, you could say that that individual could have done things to set themselves up for success and could have fixed some of those problems on their own. But at the same time, that's a difficult thing to do as a non-technical resource trying to slow technical people down enough to get explanations. So then thinking about the system, 
they didn't have a resource they could go to get answers. They were very nervous asking questions, and it made it very difficult for them to drive the kinds of delivery that I wanted. So that's the example that I feel comfortable sharing. Feel free to push back or share your own <laughs> example. No, I just, I think it can be both and. Like, I think seeing it and doing what you can do to fill in and try to help coach and bring along, like, yes, 100%. Like, that's the mentality you want to bring into everything. But I think there's also reality of the situation of, like, you can't do that for every role. You can't do that for every expectation. So for me, like, um, coming off, like, I, funny story, it's a very similar situation where we just have a project manager that's just, just flat out not cutting it. This is the biggest project that our platform had been releasing in the last seven years. Um, and hmm, trying to figure out, like, is there a way to, there's just not, I don't have the capacity. Like, there, like, I do not have the capacity to have three one-on-ones a week to show someone not just how, like, I'm not even in my org and somebody else's completely different role, how they could be better at doing their role and their job. Um, I can escalate to their manager and I would expect their manager to help. And it doesn't have to be a mean escalation. It doesn't have to be a, this person is trash. That's not at all professional. Um, this person needs coaching. This person is obviously new. They are not familiar with the way uh, these notes need to be taken or these calls need to be scheduled or this project plan needs to be put together. Um, it's, it's evident that they need help. And I don't necessarily have to be resentful towards that person because he's new, but it can't always be, you can't always play the, the, the mentor role in that. I think that's where it gets hard of when it's just a bad situation, because there's probably five different things going wrong to contribute that 10 different things going wrong to contribute that one why in the world am I so slammed that I can't schedule an additional three hours in the morning? Why have my calendar back to back to where three additional hours, it's literally just not feasible for me to be able to do. Uh, that could be considered a problem. Two, why is the biggest project of the of the last 10 years being given to someone that's a been at the company as a contractor for less than three months? Like that makes no sense whatsoever, but that's not in my control to fix. And so I guess that was the point I was going to of us. Fortunately, like some of these situations, like, you just aren't going to be able to work around. Like they just mm -hmm. are what they are. And I think that's where it comes back to perspective of one, checking the emotion. Cause it knows it does no good to rail against it. It does no good for me to come in there and just be mad at this project manager every day or be frustrated or disappointed or whatever politically correct word you want to use about it. Like it, it does no good for me just to come in every day frustrated about that. I can walk in every day and just know it's going to be a subpar experience. What can I do to try to at least contribute into your case that was scheduling one-on-ones, that was coaching, that was trying to help and contribute. Um, and maybe that three hours of time is worth it if it saves me six hours, eight hours, nine hours in the future. So like those, those, those conversations are practical, but I just, I keep coming back to the idea of you're going to have stressful situations. You're going to have stressful people. You're going to have cultures that, you know, going and getting a new job just isn't an option at the moment, or it's a season or a team that you haven't worked with where you're just working in an environment that's just at the moment, not, healthy or conducive. Um, that doesn't mean you should be able to, you have to quit your job. That doesn't mean that you should be stressed and coming home and eating potato chips every night, and, you know, or however <laughs> you're self-medicating. Um, you know, it, you, you have to have a, a way of dealing with stress and putting your work stress in perspective. And so I think that's what it comes down to is like, you can have all these situations that we've talked through these scenarios that you talk through and we can have ideal solutions to them. At the end of the day, I hate to say it, but I, I do I do strongly believe that you're responsible for your own stress. 
And if you're to the point where you can't manage your stress at your, at your current job, like you don't have a way to get a handle on it. Is it time for a vacation? Is it time for a different job? Is it time for a different company? Is it time for a new role? Like, I think those are fair questions to ask, but you need to be careful. You're not jumping to those because you haven't grown to the point to where you're learning new stress management tactics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to push back against your pushback a very little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, go for it. <laughs> this is good. This is why we're able to do it. Any listeners that we have may have someday. So I, I agree with everything that you said. You need you are responsible for your own stress at work. There will be job fits that are not good long term for yes. the employee or the company. And I think that your your point also stands that it's not scalable, where mm -hmm. I can't mentor everyone at the company and it wouldn't be helpful if I tried. Yep. But I will say I'm very willing to spend a half hour seeing if someone else feels the same stress that I do. I'm gonna pause to cough. So what I've found is that if I feel stressful, stressed about an interaction or project, likely the individual on the other end of that interaction feels the same way. Yep. And so it's not scalable to try and do three hours a week with everybody who stresses you out, but it is scalable to do a single half hour call and say, look, I want to talk about this project. I feel really stressed. And my observation is that your team has a ton of requests, or it seems like you're you're trying to project manage this thing that's been grown up in scope and it's gotten very large. How do you feel about it? And I think just expressing that empathy can give them an outlet and an opportunity to say, yes, I am overwhelmed. I can't figure out what to do and I don't know where to go. And that gives you an opportunity to either offer some additional mentoring yourself or say, have you talked to your manager about this? Or have you escalated this or talked to somebody else? So I think that's before I accept that I'm in a situation that's untenable. And I have accepted that on occasion. I often try to do that one-on-one -on -one interaction to figure out if the other individual is also stressed and if they've had a chance to talk to anyone about it and escalate it or find someone to to get help with that so that's the end of the thought i think that's helpful <laughs> before before you yeah you the situation is unrecoverable and move on no Although, i think i will add i will add i am so reluctant to mark things untenable sometimes i have to have you do that for me it's <laughs> <laughs> not possible but but if even if you just think of something like again this is a podcast someone listens to this and you ask, what response is the more human response? What response is the one you would rather have done to you? 100%, it'd be your response. 100%, like the the leadership response, the empathetic response, the I want to be help part of the, the solution um, part of and, and help is your response. And so if you ask, again, going into a new situation, do I want to be more likely to give people the benefit of the doubt? Yes. Do I need to acknowledge that I'm coming out of a culture that did not give people the benefit of the doubt? And that definitely gives me an edge to say, you're not holding up your part of it. I can't hold it up for you. I need something else here. Like, you know, that's definitely the culture I'm coming out of. Um, and is that necessarily the culture that I want to continue to be in? No, there's a reason I was looking for a job change. So I think there are pieces to take from it um, on both sides. But and maybe it's been the organizations that we've been able to work at as well. But I I can think of considerable examples of where it's just like, this is just a bad situation. 
Like, mm-hmm. and this is just a bad one that you're going to have to work through and, and walk through. Um, and it's not one that you're necessarily going to be able to fix. Um, and that's, and that's where I think it just comes to, you know, it is just work. It is just a job. Um, and you don't want to, you don't want to give up on it too soon. I'd hundred percent echo that. Like, I don't want to be the one that defaults to that. I don't want to be someone that is just in their own lane. That's, that's not at all who I think anybody else wants to be. Um, we are both very much people driven people and relationship driven people. It's just, I think, you know, you're coming out of different backgrounds and different companies. It's, it's amazing how quickly they can get you jaded when you're in those rough situations. Yeah. And then to try to be reminded to come back out of them. So mm-hmm. and come back out of that mindset. Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking about the ideal within yeah. the last week I have been, had to, had to stick my own foot in my mouth or eat a piece <laughs> of humble pie because I made assumptions about someone's satisfaction with their job that were wrong, where I kept looking at this project and it was big and important and this guy was executing on it. And there was this other team that was clearly struggling and had kind of been tromped on. And I, I underserved the stress that the first individual who looked very successful was going through. And it, it bit me in a meeting where I said something I shouldn't have. And then I had to schedule a one-on-one and be like, I think this came out wrong. And I hadn't thought about the impact this situation has had on you and your project and your mental health. How are you doing? And that person was like, this is not good. So it's I'm talking about the ideal, but it's so easy to make that mistake. And I think the biggest lesson I've learned is just keep people first. And just even if it means that you chat with somebody and you say, I agree, you are not happy here. This job is not a good fit. You're a great engineer. I'd be happy to give you a reference if you're ready to move on then it may not be good for the company, but it's still better for that person long-term. I think this could be a whole different podcast topic, but I think there's, there's something we're scratching at the surface of. Uh, and I think, I see if I can articulate it before I just spit it out. I don't think your job has to be the ideal fit for you to be able to have satisfaction in your job or be able to just leave work as work. Again, ideally, everybody will be able to go into their job and love the job and love working hard at it and kill it um, and just in, enjoy that. But I think there is a real thought of work is just work, you know, um, and I can go in and I can work a crummy job or a non-ideal job and still have a happy life outside of work. Um I don't know. Some people would see that as a lie. Some people would say that, especially if you're an entrepreneurial mindset, it'd be like, oh, you're selling your soul for the eight to five. I think I think there's a whole bunch of different ways that that could go. But the the actual concept that we're living in right now in our world um, of, you know, the individualistic uh, ideal of go do you is so and you can be anyone and you can be anything that we we take that so much as gospel um that's an incredibly new 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 concept i mean you had class systems you had uh you know just you were a farmer so your dad was a farmer so you're gonna be a farmer and if you try to go back and look at those and say well people were just naturally unhappy and they were so much more unhappy back then than they are now i don't think that's fair i I don't think that's necessarily accurate so I don't know. It just goes into a whole different world here that I'll, I'll stop rambling on. Um, but I just, the, I do think people need thicker skins at work, I, I guess is how I'd say it. And there's probably a more politically correct way to talk through that and think through that. But at the end of the day, 
you know, you are paid to do a job. You are working a job. You're exchanging your services for a paycheck. Uh, when it comes down to it, there are expectations that come with that. And that expectation does not always need to equate to your fulfillment in life and your identity. And I think too much we make it that way. And it definitely affects yeah. stress. If you make it that, it's going to make your stress higher. Yeah. I think you can come in and excel without making it your identity and without making it your your life fulfillment. And that's, so I completely agree. I love my job. I love my job. I shouldn't have said it in that monotone. And I love my job 90% of the time. And then the other 10% is awful. But <laughs> it's part of what I get paid for, right? Is that if it were always something that everyone loved to do, you probably wouldn't have to pay anyone to do it. It's the stressful 10% that is really what drives my salary. Um, and then the other aspect I'll add to that is if you can compartmentalize work <laughs> and your own self-worth, because as much as I enjoy work, it doesn't define me as a person, mm -hmm. uh, then that puts a cap on the stress. And you say, this can be very stressful from 8 a.m. to 5.30. And at 5.31, I turn off my laptop and I am no longer a software engineer. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm somebody who enjoys video games. I'm somebody who enjoys reading. And you can drop that and leave it there. Then it puts a at least a time cap on the stress that you feel. And if you can, obviously, more people, those things are going to bleed back and forth. But in general, that lets you leave it behind at work and say, this isn't who I am. I'm going to go to the other things that provide me with validation and give me give my life meaning and leave behind the stress at work. I think your 90-10 split is very unique. I bet you less than... 5%, less than 1% of the population, I think, would split it at 90-10. Really? I think so. Okay. I think so. All right. What are you at? Oh, do I want to put that on, do I want to put that on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I would say it, it's maybe a 70-30, 60-40. Um, okay. I do it because I do think I'm good at my job. Um, and so I find enjoyment out of being competent, um, at being good at what I do. Um. I think the product role, going back into a more true product role, I think that enjoyment is going to go way up um, compared to what I have been doing in a more of a delivery space. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But I, again, we live in a world that lets us do it more. So if you hate your job, um, should you try to look for other options? Yeah, we live in a space that lets you look for other options. So I don't think there's anything necessarily inherently wrong with that. Um, I think if you hate your job, though, you also need to first internally look at how are you handling your stress? How much emphasis are you putting on your job? Um, how much is it just work that you don't like versus your job that you don't like? Um, I think there's just a lot of self-analysis questions that go into the I hate my job mentality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of it is around this kind of the stress conversation we have of if your job is causing you insurmountable levels of stress. Um, not always. There's 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 genuine circumstances. So I don't want to belittle someone's stress, but I would say a lot of times it might be why 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 is your job causing that much stress? Now, if it's a paycheck thing and I have five kids to feed, and if I don't have this job, I have that. I understand that. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. But again, we live in a world where if you and I got JD tomorrow, job discontinued, we would both probably find new jobs in our space within a month to three months, six months at most. I'm um, like, you know, it's not like uh, we're in a place that lacks options for finding new things. Um, so in that scenario, if you're finding yourself stressed at work, I would say, why? 
you know, mm-hmm. what, what level are you putting on it? And again, I'm obviously going to a new job. I, I was evaluating where I was at role wise, culture wise. And like, I'm ready for something different. I think there's total fine for that, but I can look at it and go, man, Brian is bringing up some edges that I didn't realize I had put on in my last job that I had forgotten about. Um, and how do I handle my stress? How do I document? Um, how do I compartmentalize? Like these are things that are at the forefront of my mind going into a new one because half of my unsatisfaction on my old job wasn't the job. It was how I handled my job. So how do I address mm-hmm. those things? So. Yeah. Well said. I added, do you love your job or hit your job to our podcast list of topics? Oh man. <laughs> I would, I'm going to go on record on this again. <laughs> <laughs> no, so no, necessary. I think this was a good one. I think this was a really good one. I, I like talking about stress. Um, I like talking about how stress impacts a team and how we can be good team members. Um, I think there's definitely times to where I have higher expectation of team members, which doesn't help the stress level of the team. <laughs> so how could I communicate that better and be more of a team member in that? Um, but how do we, how we handle stress is so key in this, especially when you read articles like, God, I read something the other day, like Gen Z are already like the most work burnt out generation. And it's like, they've been in the workforce for five years. Like they're kind of who we're doing this podcast for or yeah. people, you know, from us and, and are starting their career. And it's just like, why is that? Why, why mm-hmm. are Gen Z who are five years green into the workforce, maybe a little bit longer, a little bit less, depending on who you are. Um, the ones already experiencing the most burnout, like there's something there. Why? You know, I think yeah. a lot of it comes back to how do you manage your stress and what level of emphasis do you put on your job? Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Closing thoughts. I think my key takeaway, so I uh, have gotten a lot of feedback over my career about my ownership over problems and teams and products. And I typically show very high ownership where I consider a lot of things my problem and I am willing to focus on a lot of things that might be outside of my area. And it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes you can take that too far. Sometimes you don't take it far enough. And I am realizing that I don't see a product owner's stress as partly my problem often enough, where I'm too willing to say that's a product thing. Uh, I provided the engineering documentation and I'm out, figure it out, talk to the VPs, I don't care. And that's something that I need to adjust. adjust. So I need to see product owners as part of the team and part of the company that I'm at and, part, and, and own their problems like I do with other engineering teams. And then I think the other, my other key takeaway is when, is keeping an eye on when trying to help others with stress and help other people who are causing you stress can become not scalable. And when you take that too far or you get too invested and instead it would be more helpful and more productive to empathize and then redirect to another source for help with that that's going to be a better fit and more effective than me trying to stretch myself out and mentor yeah. help too many people. And that's just cultural. I mean, again, I think it just depends on you have the infrastructure or not. Like if there are other people they can turn to, or are you there, the person they have to lean on? Um, I would just say if that infrastructure is in place, you're in a good place. If, if you can say, Hey, who can you turn to from help? And you're mm-hmm. not having to cross over too far. Again, your team, your your domain, your experience, your engineer, that's a little bit different. But I think when you start crossing domains, it starts to be a little bit more slippery ground. But again, that's me coming from a certain lens of a certain way to where it's such a results-oriented place to where you just got to keep going. Um, mm-hmm. So what was your first takeaway? 
uh, that I don't see product owners as part of my team. <laughs> that was it. That was it. I think what what came up what came up from that is I think it's a two edged sword. It goes both from product engineer and engineer to product. Uh, facts become swords. Like you have to get to the facts. Like don't get, like wrong. Like you have to be dealing in logic and facts and what can we do now with what's in front of us and on the table at this point in time. So I, I very much value those facts. But I think it goes both ways. If an engineer is coming up and says, "Well, it's not possible," deal with it. Sayonara, like those are the facts, but how you deliver that and how you see yourself as impacted by that goes a long way. It's like if you realize if you're an engineer and you're delivering a message of this was missed or this is new or this is just what it is. Um, and you are talking to a product owner that now has to go on a roadshow and communicate to 10 different clients that they're not going to get this feature that you had promised them six months ago. It's a really sucky place to be in. <laughs> I was like, it is still the facts and nothing changed about what's going to happen in that scenario. Uh, but the empathy there goes a long ways. I think the same thing back from um, product owners. I think too often, like, oh, product owners' favorite say, phrase sometimes is let's focus on the solution. Um, and, and it's a dismissal of the impact. Because um, yeah. at the same time, I mean, it's true. We need to focus on the solution. Like, this is where we're at. We need to move forward. We need to focus on the solution. Same thing as facts. It's engineer giving product owners fact. is the same thing as a product owner saying we need to focus on the solution. When you just drop the bomb of there's a missed requirement or a new use case or something that wasn't discovered until late. And now engineers are going to be pushed to try to deliver in the same timeline. Like, we just need to focus on a solution. Yes, but let's let's give a little empathy there. I think it's the same way. Um, yeah. Yep. The engineer version of that is the estimates came in higher and like a surprise, the timeline changed. Yeah, imagine um, that. And it's, you know, it, it, you're, it goes back to facts. Mm -hmm. Estimates are tough. Everybody knows that. Estimates change. Everybody knows that. But it, you, need, you still need to deliver that message to your product owner with some empathy and say, like you just said, the timeline changed. And I know this means you have to go in front of the VP and tell them that the product is going to be delayed. I know this means you have to send an email to customers and tell them that it's going to be delayed. But to deliver what you want with the quality you're asking for, this is the amount of effort. So yeah, yeah just considering product owners a part of your team and extending that empathy to them as well, I think is, is one of my key, key takeaways here, like which it. neither of my takeaways are about stress. <laughs> it's just the stress but. conversation. I mean, a big part of your job, our jobs is managing through stressful situations and making the stressful, not stressful. And I do think this is one of the main ones. Like we talk about uh, learnings from the middle and being 10 years, you know, 10 to 12 years into our careers. Like I think this is when we'd come back to an answer very differently um, in another 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I think 10 years after that, like, again, if you ask me what was stressful 10 years ago versus what's stressful now, that's two very different definitions. Like mm -hmm. what project doesn't have a showstopper in the last two, you know, three days of the project. I mean, for Pete's sake, why is that always the case? Not always, but like, you know, that, that rattled me. Like that was stressful of my, my three projects that I had managed at the time and all three of them had showstoppers and oh my gosh, like, like, like oh, showstopper. Okay. Let me know in two hours when you found what the issue is. Let me know if we're going to launch or not. Like, you know, it's not yeah. monotonous. You still, again, you still respond with urgency. But I guess the point, short point is, again, what caused me stress 10 years ago and what caused me stress now, how I handled stress 10 years ago versus how I should handle stress now, um, how I handful, handle stressful people 10 years ago versus how I handle stressful people now. Like, if we're handling those things the same way five years from now, 10 years from now, we're not learning, we're not growing. So I guess it'd be a fun one. What does this look like 10 years from now? Yeah. 
And I think back to 10 years ago, if you asked me that question, what stresses you out at work 10 years ago, I would have said product owners who ask for more work than can be done in the amount of time. And, you know, when when you first start your career, that's a jarring experience as an engineer to realize that there's money funding what you do. And mm-hmm. at some point you got to finish it <laughs> and make yep. some money off of it. And then as you go on in your career, you realize that that just happens. It's a part of being in the software world where there are goals, there are projects, there are visions, and they're dramatic and expansive on purpose. And everyone knows that you're not going to do all of it. And it's just a matter of figuring out. you can't out- not ask. You cannot ask. And you, it's just a matter of figuring out what the planning investment should be and how much time it's worth spending planning. And then you dialogue about it, you share the estimates, and you see how far you're going to get. And so it's it just becomes such a, we do this every month kind of activity that it, it stresses you out so much less when you've done it for once a month for about 10 years straight. Yep. And also, last thought here too, we talk about stress and managing stress. Um we get a ton of practice at it. And I feel like I had to translate this empathy outside of work. When you are talking to people who don't go through this cycle as fast as we go through it, like we ship projects every three to six to nine months, you know, depending on how big the project is or how agile waterfall, whatever those are, but still we 10 years into this, we've gone through this cycle at least four times a year with probably multiple iterations. Cause you're not ever just working one project. For the last 10 years. I mean, we have we have hundreds of reps with these different stressful situations. So we have practice at handling our stress, practice at handling difficult conversations. And then you go out and you work with someone who doesn't have those reps and you get frustrated that they can't communicate or handle or, or discuss under stress. It's just like, there's a blessing to being in a career in an industry where we get the reps to become better at handling stress because it yeah. translates outside of work too. I think that's a good note to end on. That stress as frustrating as it can be and as stressful <laughs> it it offers you an opportunity to grow and learn 100%. and it is it's a it's a an, an exercise that you can repeat and get better at over time it will not push you to a mental breakdown every day always you can learn to adjust you can learn to manage it you can get better at it with practice i like it let's wrap it cool. there we'll come yep. back to it again thanks to anybody who tuned in and i hope it was <laughs> useful have a great Talk night. next time